Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, it's going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid, and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not-always-perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live-stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. Amen. Amen. Uh, Would you like to take a seat? It's very nice to see you all. Uh, My name is Ed. If you don't know me, I lead the church with my wife, Hannah, uh, who is not here. She's currently on a flight because we're going on vacation. I'm going on vacation with them. They're just going earlier today. Uh, So um, we uh, will not be here for the next couple of weeks. Don't break anything. We will be back. Uh, But um, we will see you when we return. Uh, if you're new visiting, um, then as Raoul said, you're here on your own terms. It's great to have you with us. Um, we are in a series on uh, 1 John, uh, and um, I'm carrying on with chapter 2 today. Did you know that in the middle of the 17th century, the word obedience was used in the English language once every 8,000 words on average? Or to put it another way, five times in every single book written at the time. Today, the word obedience is used one in 100,000 words, or to put it another way, for every five times it's used in one book, 13 other books do not feature it at all. Now, I'm sure that's no surprise to us. Back in the 17th century, when the word obedience was at its peak, there were quite a few things that it was generally quite good to be obedient to. For instance, if you lived in England, you needed to be obedient to the monarchy. Otherwise, you might find that your head is cut off and put on a spike. But now, perhaps, the popularity of the word and actually seemingly the concept in general has been in decline. But I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing. Disobedience, when it comes to rejection of conformity, rejection of control, is usually a very good and very godly thing. There is such thing, of course, as a healthy disregard for authority. But what of the other side of obedience? What, in our post-obedient world, are we to make of today's passage from 1 John, which insists on the importance and centrality of obedience to the Christian life? Now, it may be tempting to skirt round this and sort of dismiss it as some sort of trigger to authoritarian, or, sorry, authoritarian domination that we have now moved past. But to do so, I think, would be a big mistake, even if to do so is quite understandable. The truth is that for many people, what has been said to be required of godly obedience, what has been handed down to you, has actually got very little to do with the teachings of Jesus and a lot more to do with the legalistic or power-hungry whims of particular fallen people. 
a friend of ours started coming to this very church from another church because that other church insisted that she, along with all the other women, wore skirts and stockings or otherwise they would be thrown out. She didn't want to wear skirts or stockings, so she was thrown out. A friend of ours from the UK was advised by a very conscientious Christian that if she was going to follow Jesus, she needed to stop going to the cinema because the cinema is evil, and the reason we know the cinema is evil is because it's got the word sin in it. That's not a joke. Less extreme, but possibly more insipid, would be the far too common insistence that if you're really serious, if you're really serious about being a Christian, you will commit your whole self, all your time, all your money, everything about you to this church, and you will serve on this team, and you will pack down, and you will tear down, and you will set up, and you will go to this course, and you will go to this thing, and you will give all your money, and you will bring all your friends, and you will collapse your whole autonomy into this church, because that's what good, obedient Christians do. None of this has anything to do with the obedience that the New Testament talks about. Legalism like this is about control and conformity and a reduction of autonomy. And those who look to exert their power, their idea over uh, what people should do, are doing it not for the sake of Jesus, but for their own sake. But can I say that Christian obedience, by contrast, is actually the opposite? The consequence of godly obedience is that we actually become more fully ourselves, less restricted, less conformed, more ourself, as we are able to fully inhabit the version of us that Jesus created and wants us to grow into. As we come under his authority, we are also set free from fallen, oppressive, controlling, restrictive, legalistic ways of being by his Holy Spirit, because where the Spirit is, there is freedom. John goes on to describe the commands of Jesus in chapter 5 as not being burdensome, by which he means Jesus' commands are not burdensome. I know, isn't that strange? Not burdensome for everyone, in fact. Not purely not burdensome for the trained, dogmatic, disciplined, mature ones. Do you know how much I can bench? Neither do I. I have no idea how much I can bench because I've never tried to bench anything. However, if I were to go and try and bench something, I barely know what that term means, I'm pretty sure that what I could bench is pretty close to zero because I've never done it and I've never been trained in it. But if my imaginary friend, Mr. Brozef von Muscle Supplements of Bro Gym Brotown, If he, who goes to the gym every day, twice a day, and doesn't miss leg day, if he were to go and do some benching, he, of course, would be able to bench way more than me because he's trained in it. Now, this is not what John means by these commands not being burdensome. He doesn't mean that they are not burdensome for the disciplined, well-trained few. He's saying that they are actually not burdensome for everyone. The reality, though, isn't it, 
that often even talk of the commands of Jesus, even talk of obedience, makes us feel very burdened very quickly. Either because it's too difficult to live as we are supposed to, or if we do manage to live as we are supposed to, or if we've done it in the past, what we have found is that it brings little to no joy. We sang, you are my joy, my joy, my joy earlier. But the reality is, for a lot of people, it's actually, you are my burden, you are my guilt, you are my shame, you make me feel terrible. I think the reason we've got here is because what the New Testament means by Christian obedience has not been properly understood or taught for quite a long time, if not all the time. My job, the job of this church, Hannah and my job, both this morning and throughout our time, is to try and redress the balance. Because if we cannot really sing, you are my joy, my joy, my joy, something has gone fundamentally wrong. So, um, without much further ado, let's read this morning's passage. This is First uh, John chapter 2, beginning at verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But anyone who obeys his word, love for God, is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So, obedience. This passage is basically separated into three different sections. The opening section and the final section are both addressed to um, the Gnostics, which I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, and then the middle section is this little bit uh, directed towards the community, uh, the faithful, the good, uh, lovely Johannine Christian people sitting at his feet, his beloved community, whom he addresses as dear friends. Let's start with the polemic, the early bit and the late bit against the Gnostics. That's 3, 6, and 9 to 11. Now, as Hannah introduced last week, Gnosticism at this stage hadn't grown into this kind of formal uh, religious uh, practice or way of being, but a lot of the ideas were kind of swirling around the Christian community. And most prevalent and most important to these ideas was the idea that surely, surely God could not have come as a human being because humans are dirty and base. To do so would debase himself. So Jesus wasn't actually human. He was a sort of spirit man. And because uh, everything earthly, everything material, everything um, bodily is, is dirty and horrible. It doesn't actually really matter what we do with our bodies. We can do anything with them. So sin doesn't really exist. And also, here, the commands of Jesus, those don't really count either. It's all about just being connected to God. So John has these three arguments uh, that are all very similar. 
that match up in this little passage. And they go like this. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commands is a liar. Verse 6. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk as he walked. Verse 9. Whoever says, I am the light, but hates his brother, lives in darkness. We'll come on to the specifics of what the obedience means in a minute, but let me clarify what he means by knowing Jesus, abiding in Jesus, and being in the light. These are all three synonymous things. They all mean the same thing to John. And what they mean is connection with Jesus. It's about being one with him. It's about us dwelling in his presence and his presence dwelling in us. It's about intimacy with him. It's about inhabiting his person as he inhabits us. And so what John is not saying but sadly has often been taught, is in order to be a good Christian boy, in order to be a good Christian girl, you must be a good obedient boy or girl. Rather, what he's saying is intimacy with Jesus will necessarily result in obedience. There is an inevitability about it. These Gnostics, you see, are boasting about how intimately connected they are to God. They are more connected than anyone ever. They have reached this utopian connection of intimacy with God. But all the while, they're saying, we don't need to follow the commands, and we're not following the commands of Jesus. And John's point is, you have proved yourself to be liars. Because if you are connected in the way you are to Jesus, you cannot help but follow him. But the fact that you're not following him means that your premise is false. You are not connected to him at all. It's almost like we can't help it when we're close to him. I went to LAFC um, for the first time this week. Uh, Los Angeles Football Club, for those of you who don't know. It's so much fun. I really recommend it. I'm wary of recommending things, though, because I said a few weeks ago that I had gone to see Black Widow, and it was the greatest film ever. And then someone said, oh, I went to see it because you told me to go and see it. And then I could tell that they wanted to tell me that it was great, but they didn't really like it. Uh, anyway, go to LAFC. It will change your life. Unfortunately, this was soured by, as we were walking in, there was someone with a megaphone shouting some things at people. And the things that they were shouting from a Christian perspective, was basically God hates various different types of people, and I also hate them. This isn't quite the equivalent of the Gnostic problem, but it's not too dissimilar. And so following John, are we, as good Christians, therefore legitimated to make judgment calls about people who we come across personally or we see in the public sphere who purport to be connected to God, but spew hatred, or don't follow God's commands, or actually, even worse, say God's commands don't really apply to them. Yes, I think we can. No, I don't think we should. I don't think we should. Well, I suppose there are a couple of reasons, too. One would be to protect immature Christians, from this sort of stuff. And secondly, we're probably, as a sort of apologetic to people who don't believe, saying, I really don't think this is Jesus. This is our faith. This is a misrepresentation. But however much we might tell ourselves that those are our motives, 
I think most of the time our motives for saying how dare you call yourself a Christian are because we want to be right and we think we are right and we don't like them. But more to the point, if we're honest with ourselves for a second, haven't we got enough obedience issues of our own to be worrying about rather than everyone else's? I'll answer that for you. Yes, you do. Look at you. I don't. But you do. You have serious obedience issues. Look. Look at you. That's a joke. The obedience that we're called to, as John sets it out, is this. Keep the commands of Jesus. Live as he lived. And love, don't hate your brothers and sisters. The commands of Jesus are seen most clearly in his famous ethical teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. Let me summarize it for you, in case you've forgotten. Not just no murder, but no hatred either. Not just no adultery, but no lust either. Husbands, don't just divorce your wife because you don't like them anymore or you're bored of them. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek, love your enemies, let your yes be yes and your no be no, give money away, pray, fast, don't store treasure up in heaven, don't worry, don't judge, you know, all that easy basic stuff. But if that wasn't enough, there's more, because being obedient to Jesus also means, verse 6, living as he did. Obedience is not just about our ethical choices. It's also about our whole posture, our whole focus, where our heart is directed, how we spend every moment of our time. Jesus proclaimed that he only ever did what he saw his father doing. So to live like Jesus is to do the same. It's obedience means utter dependence on God. It's following the direction of the Spirit. It's giving up our lives for the sake of others. It's service. It's preaching the gospel. It's healing the sick. It's casting out demons. Done any of that recently? It's when we're asked to go one mile, to go the extra one too. It's reckless generosity. It's grace to everyone. You know, just a bit more of the basic easy stuff. But if that's not enough, there's more. Obedience is also love, not hatred. Verse 10, for our brothers and sisters. But a quality of love that we so rarely see, that we so rarely comprehend even. Consider the people with whom you most vehemently disagree. People whose values, opinions are not just contrary to yours, but are abusive and destructive and hate-filled. if it's not too difficult, also consider people who willingly and ongoingly cause other people huge amounts of pain. Greedy, manipulative, abusive people. And if it's not too difficult, consider the people who've done that to you. There's lots of great parts to my job, one of the most difficult parts of my job is hearing from lots of different people just how awful people have been to them, which I tend to hear. What's wonderful is Jesus heals and restores it, but the pain that we can cause one another is extraordinary, isn't it? Consider those people for a bit, if it's not too painful. We're called not just to forgive them, but to love them. 
how on earth do we do that? Now, on the one hand, if we're able to maybe dissociate their thoughts and their behaviors and the things they've said from who they are, it becomes a bit easier to love them. But in doing that, what we're actually doing is loving a version of them, not them. Because it's impossible, actually, to separate what people say and think and believe and do from who they actually are. Now, to be clear, Jesus hates our sin. He doesn't love our sin. And we shouldn't love ours or anyone else's sin either. But the love of God was shown that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us because he knows what we are and what we do cannot be separated. And he actually loves us in all of it. So much so that he changes us out of it. We're never called sinners in the New Testament. You are not a sinner. You're a saint. But that's not to say that he doesn't see us as we actually are and still loves us. And this is the sort of love he is calling us to show to other people. It's impossible, right? It is impossible. Let's just be completely clear. We cannot do this. I can't, and I'm better than you. And yet this is the obedience to which we're called. So how do we reconcile this, quite frankly, seemingly impossible, onerous standard of obedience with John's insistence that the commands of Jesus are not burdensome? The key is in that little middle passage directed to his community. Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you've heard. Yet, I am also writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. The command to obedience is both old and new. It's old in terms of its unchanged ingredients. Jesus' commands are still Jesus' commands from the beginning. But it's new in terms of its moment. Since Jesus' death and resurrection, a new age where darkness is receding and light is winning, has begun. The defining principle of this new age is that God's spirit has been poured out on all flesh and we can therefore enjoy intimacy with him. This is how the prophet Ezekiel saw it. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He will cause us to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. He will do it. The degree to which we are connected to him, abiding in him, having his spirit flow through us, body, mind, and soul, is the degree to which we will able, be able to walk his walk and follow his commands. This is John's, and in fact the whole of the New Testament's whole point when it comes to the ethical life. So, 
our prayer, our primary prayer, should not be, God, please help me be more obedient. It should be, God, please help me be more connected to you. Don't we know this to be true when we consider our own earthly relationships? When I got married to my wonderful wife, Hannah, <laughs> as opposed to my other wives, uh, <laughs> This, this particular one, she's I've only got one wife. Uh, only have one wife, it's a good thing. Anyway, uh, when I got married to her, I didn't think, what a wonderful opportunity for a spot of adultery. This is what I've been waiting for. I did not think that because I love my wife and I wanted to be completely committed to her. As time has gone on, I know the degree to which I want to do and say and be the person who makes her feel loved, to please Hannah, is always almost entirely connected to the degree to which our love is strong, our bond is close. We are connected to one another. Now, to be clear, this isn't just about our feelings. Our feelings come and go, they're very important, but they come and go, they can't always be trusted. Connection with God does involve our emotions, but it is not just about our emotions. It cannot be limited just to them. It's also about our bodies, where we are physically. It's why church in person is important. It's why coming together and being with people. It's why going to first Wednesdays and being part of a super small group and being part of the next summer nights we do is important because we need to be together. It helps us. Now, I know virtual church is great and it's very important for lots of people, but quite frankly, virtual church can kiss my bum. We're supposed to be around each other. We're supposed to be together. Now, I know that that's important for lots of people to be able to do that. We'll carry on doing that. But our physical presence is important for our connection to God. It's not just our emotions. And so too, our wills and our minds. Many um, of the commentaries and articles about this passage kind of do the dissecting that I've just done and then go, so the problem is with the modern church. Too much grace, not enough obedience. That's where they end up. Too much grace, not enough obedience. We've become grace heavy. This is entirely wrong. It's entirely wrong. Let me tell you why it's entirely wrong, is you can't have too much grace. It is impossible to have too much grace because grace is infinite. But it's also wrong because what we believe actually affects how we live. And the whole thrust of the New Testament is that grace is what has changed everything, nothing else. So it's not a case of if we overemphasize grace, then we will lose obedience. Rather, the more we emphasize grace, the more obedience will come, because it's grace that is at the heart of what we believe. It's only when we accept that we are actually loved. It's only when we accept that we are actually his favorite, the ones who he wants to spend time with. It's only when we truly believe that his unconditional love for us is reckless and over the top and ridiculous and quite frankly, a little bit stupid but it's constantly going after us, that we can actually believe that we might be intimate and close to him. 
Grace is the means by which we abide in Jesus, we live in Jesus, we know Jesus. And it's when we are most connected to him. So, if there is a lack of obedience in your life, it's almost certainly because there's a lack of grace. So, to borrow a slightly cheesy song lyric, come to the Father. His arms are open wide. Because connection to him involves our minds, what we believe about him and what we believe about ourselves. It it includes our physical presence and it includes our feelings and emotions and it includes our spirit. Finally, a quick word about the word obedience. As I said, I know that this word can elicit some difficult responses in people because of how it has been maybe represented in the past that's got nothing to do with Jesus. Particularly if, as I've said, obedience has been demanded of you by abusive people who are far more concerned with their own power than helping you become the person that Jesus created you to be. Well, the truth about obedience is it's actually for little children. It's for the immature. When our kids were young, we used to say, you need to obey us because we'll keep you safe. So stop playing with the hedge trimmer. Stop playing with the bazooka. Those things will hurt you, little children. And they would do it because they knew that they needed to be obedient, and we taught them that. Similarly, young Christians need to know things like, yeah, before you were a Christian, you probably did think it was fine to hate your enemies, but do you know what? Jesus actually says, trust me on this, don't hate your enemies. So we need to reorganize ourselves just to be obedient to him because they're immature. But as adults, I actually think we move beyond obedience. I'm not obedient to my wife, and my wife's not obedient to me. We love each other. And this is what Jesus calls us to. Beyond obedience, to love, to connection, to partnership with him. We are, how extraordinary is this, co-equals with Jesus in this whole life thing that we're navigating our way through. Partners, co-heirs with him. Now, Being a Christian is not always easy. The Christian life is not easy. Please don't hear me to be saying that. But there's a big difference between the natural struggle that we all have because we haven't quite made it to heaven yet and we are confronted by the brokenness of us and other people in this world and the impossible burden of carrying things that are actually not yours to carry. If your sense of calling brings no life to you. Rather than struggle on, martyr-like, consider that that might not actually be God's calling for your life. If Hannah was here, she would say that one of the most freeing moments of her life was feeling like she was called to be a church leader because it was sort of expected. We'd got together, I was training, she kind of felt like this is what she's supposed to do. 
and it just felt like the thing that she most didn't want to do in the world, this burden on her of, I've got to be like this, I've got to do this. And the most freeing moment came when she felt God say, I never asked you to do this. You don't have to do this. And all that weight, all that expectation, all that sense of her life actually being restricted and constrained and slithered away fell by the wayside and she could be herself. Now the irony is she's now a church leader, but she wants to be and she loves it most of the time. If you feel like you're continually letting God down and do not match up to his standards, consider this. You're entirely right. But, and this is the whole story of the Bible, God is not looking for subservient automatons. He's looking for loving partners. So, let our primary prayer not be, God, help me be more obedient, but God, let me be more connected to you. Help me come to you. The truth is, for a lot of us, we actually, whilst we know it to be a hard slog, find it easier and simpler to take the martyr route. To flog ourselves, to go, woe is me, I'll try harder next time, God, I really will, than to do what he invites us to do, which is to let him be God. Let him love us. Let him heal the pain. Open up our hearts and pour his spirit of life into us. We find it more difficult because, as Casey was prophesying earlier, it means actually giving up control and surrendering. And as we often say, none of you, none of you woke up this morning saying, I really hope there's a good chance to show some humility today at church. I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to being humbled. Can't wait. And yet, that is actually what God calls us to do over and over again, to humble ourselves. To allow him to speak to us, to fill us with his love, so that we might actually live as people of the Spirit and follow his ways. That's what he's calling us to do. Not, God, make me more obedient, but yes to, God, help me be more connected. Here I am. I give my life to you once again. Fill me. Heal me. Empower me. That's what it's all about. Good. That's enough of that.